Genesis 15, 1 through 18. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? And Abram said, you, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich. Um, I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And uh, I have to tell you, I, um, I enjoy being with you. And I enjoy hearing you sing and getting to pray with you and serve communion. It is an honor, and I uh, just want to say thank you for being here. As you arrived, you should have received a bulletin. Inside that is um, kind of a tall, skinny sheet of paper on there. Um, it's got scriptures. It's got space for you to jot down questions, thoughts, verses, ideas, whatever you need um, for processing this morning's teaching. So I want to make sure you uh, make note of that. Today we are in week two of our new Lenten sermon series. And as we discussed last week with the launch, we're doing something a little different, something we haven't done before here, and that is that we are following the lectionary and the text that it gives us for this season. Now, a lectionary is a collection of readings or selections of scriptures arranged and intended to be taught to the people of God here, like a church. And they were known and used all the way back to the 4th century where churches arranged scripture according to a schedule which followed the church calendar. This practice has continued ever since. It's still used by churches all over the world. And so this year we thought it'd be cool to kind of do something different, kind of join the larger Christian community around the world in doing the same. So what that looks like is on your piece of paper there, the scriptures that are assigned for this week are there. Um, I tried to put them in the size that you might be able to read and get them all on there. Um, But typically every week we're going to have a scripture from the Old and New Testament, a psalm, a gospel, an epistle. And whoever's teaching for that particular Sunday is going to be spending time processing 
how to go about talking about this and what, what direction to go. And if in case you missed it, um, we are officially in a season in the church calendar called Lent. It started with Ash Wednesday and continues all the way up to Easter on March 27th. And as a quick review, what in the world is Lent? What does that mean when we talk about it? Lent literally means springtime. It's time when we symbolically return to the wilderness where Jesus spent 40 days readying himself for ministry. And we looked at this story last week and learned that as a result of what Jesus went through, we should expect to go through some of the same. That Lent is a time of readying. It's a time of preparation for new life and new possibilities for us. And we also learned that Lent is not just about giving things up. right? That historically it's been balanced with giving things up in order to be able to give things to. So, for example, you choose to give up Facebook in order to make some more time to talk with people in person. Imagine that. Or you take a break from TV in order to make some more space to pray. But we remember from last week what problem with Lent is we get so caught up immediately in the rules and the requirements, and, and that's not what it's about. The practice of Lent isn't even in the Bible. It's not a requirement for Christians. It doesn't make you a better, more spiritual Just me. Hey, pleased to meet you. We say hallelujah, Um, but not for a while, sorry. Uh, The practice of Lent, as I said, isn't in the Bible. It's not a requirement or anything. It's a spiritual practice. It's an exercise, if you will. It's, It's about an opportunity for us to stretch ourselves spiritually to better engage with God in some of the deeper parts of ourselves that we would probably choose to avoid, much like us trying to avoid stretching and exercise, even though we know it's good for us. Maybe I'm just talking about myself there, but you know what I mean. Now, Lent, as a result, we should expect that we might encounter aspects of ourselves that we're not too excited about, like the fact that we're not as flexible or in the same shape that we maybe once were, because it involves a deeper level of attention to our own life. It causes us to recognize and grapple with the reality that it's our sin that crucified Christ, that we actually have to do the work of turning, repenting, and entering into a faithful relationship with God. Now, contrary to the sounds, it's not a bad thing, right? Lent is a good thing. As one person said, Lent is meant to be the church's springtime, a time when out of the darkness of sin's winter, a repentant, empowered people emerges. So, much like the sacrifice we make to exercise and stretch leads to better physical health, our sacrifices during this time of Lent can help us better focus on our heart's deepest longing, which is to be in unity with Jesus. So during Lent, we expect to be tested, we expect to be pressed and encouraged and comfortable at times. You'll be challenged, right, to, to let go of the pacifiers, the painkillers, the whatever it is that you reach for when things get tough and you are trying to avoid that wilderness experience. And all it requires is our willingness to be honest with ourselves, with God, to do some more listening, breathing, responding, 
as Lent will be constantly challenging us and calling us out on our willingness to trust God and his faithfulness and his goodness. So, that's a little review. That's what we're doing with our series, the lectionary. That's what we're talking about with Lent. Before we dive into today's stuff, let me, let me pray. God, we, we just thank you that you are here with us, that you're present, that when we sing, when we remember you in communion, when we come to pray, all those things, um, you are present here with us. And so even now in your presence, God, we pray that you would help us to be attentive to what you want us to hear. And not just hearing, but responding. So be with us as we look at your word. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So last week, if you weren't with us, we appropriately started our Lenten journey with the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. We saw that after 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus not only learned to manage his appetites for the cravings of this world that we all know cannot satisfy, but that he also learned to trust the Holy Spirit that had led him there to lead him out, that this was preparing him for ministry. And we also found that at some point, if not multiple times in our life, we are going to have our own wilderness experience. It's unavoidable. And that these experiences take all kinds of shapes and sizes. And although we personally do everything in our power, with our time, with our money, to avoid going into those places of the wilderness, the scripture actually shows us that it's the wilderness that is in fact one of the most reality-based, spirit-filled, life-changing places we could be in. The question, though, is why do we do this? Why do we avoid going there? Why instead do we reach for the pacifiers and the painkillers and the anesthesia of life to avoid going to those difficult, uncomfortable places that the Holy Spirit is in fact leading us into? And I think the answer to this is found in our lectionary text for today, but I'll give you the really quick answer. I think the answer is fear. I recently read an article called The Top Ten Human Fears. This was like a global... uh, Assessment of what fears people have. And there's a top 10 list, human fears global. Here it is. Number 10, losing your freedom. Number 9, the unknown. Number 8, pain. 7, disappointment. Misery. Fear of loneliness. Ridicule. Rejection. Number 2, biggest fear, death. And number 1 was the fear of failure. Now, you hear those, and we can kind of see how Some of these are tied together, right? Death and the unknown, maybe, or rejection and ridicule or pain and misery. What we see is that these are generally what we would call existential fears, right? Inner conditions of the heart. They're not specific fears, right? I did, however, come across another kind of Gallup poll answering the question, what scares Americans most? And this got a little more specific. Top 12, number 12, the dark. That's a scary place. Number 11, going to the doctor. 10, thunder and lightning. 9, dogs of all kinds. Uh, 8, flying on an airplane. 7, this is a good one, mice. We fear mice in America. 6, needles and getting shots. 5, spiders. 4, being closed in small places. 3, being heights. Number 2, public speaking. And number 1, snakes. 
Oh, why did it have to be snakes? Uh, this is obviously a much more right, concrete list. I can kind of identify with the part about needles, maybe spiders. Uh, airplanes don't bother me a whole lot, and uh, I don't really fear public speaking. Um, <laughs> I get nervous sometimes. But uh, your list, right, is going to be different. But we can all identify with some of these things on the second list. The first list, we definitely can, right? If we're not worried about dogs, we certainly fear rejection, especially from those we love. So it's no surprise, too, that fear and failure um, come at the top of the list. Because how frustrating it is to feel like you wasted your short amount of time here on, on earth, or how terrible would it feel to kind of come to the end of your life and to look back and go, this was a bust, right? This is not the way I hoped it would be. And somewhere in all of these fears, our thinking about God comes into the equation. There must be a reason why the Bible tells us fear not literally hundreds of times in various places and times throughout the scriptures. Fear is a basic human emotion, and many of us are constantly living in the grip of that fear of worry and of anxiety. And God knows that we all wrestle with this at some point, if not sooner or later, over and over again, which is why God says, fear not. But what do you do when fears are winning? What if you pray and God still hasn't come through for you? If you're like me, if you're like most people, you begin to lose hope. And you wonder why you bothered to pray in the first place. And deep in the soil of your heart, little seeds of doubt start to take root, growing up into a harvest of frustration, a harvest of anger. And it's in these places where we start trying to do it on our own, reaching for whatever might help us, whatever it's going to help us manage or cope with the doubts and the frustrations and the anger that we're feeling. And this happens to everyone. Even all over the scriptures, men and women struggled with their inner doubts when their hopes and their dreams and their prayers didn't come to happen as they had desired. And our story today of Abram illustrates this. But in order to get to it, we need to get the context. We have to go back some 40 centuries to a place called Ur. It's a great name for a city. This was a large city on the banks of the Euphrates River, which still exists today, by the way, flowing through Iraq and emptying into the Persian Gulf, not far from Kuwait. And historians tell us that Ur was one of the most important cities of the ancient world. In his day, some 250,000 people lived there. It was an ancient city, had a, a university, it had this large library, and it was known to be a center of mathematics and astronomy and international commerce, a lot like we might think of New York or London or maybe Singapore. Now, Abraham, who's first called Abram, as the story begins, is about 75 years old when we meet him, which in those days would have been considered middle age. Um, he's prosperous. He's a businessman. He is no doubt known well by many and he and his wife, Sarah, who was first called Sarai, will have no children at all. And it's against the backdrop of this that God speaks to Abram for the very first time. And we see that conversation in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says this, 
The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Later, God promises to give him descendants, according to the scriptures, like the dust of the earth. In our text today, we see the stars, right? How can you count them? Now, ten years have quickly passed, and there's no sign of children. Abraham is almost 85. He's not getting any younger. Sarah is far past childbearing age, and even though he has just won this great miraculous victory that we see in Genesis 14, nothing can satisfy their deep desire for a son. Now, I think Abraham's greatest fear stems from the fact that God did not seem to be in a hurry to give them a child. How much longer? Why the delay? Had God changed his mind? Was there some problem he didn't know about? Are they doing something displeasing to God? Should we go to plan B? And this happens to all of us when we have to wait. We are not patient people. We hate waiting, especially a long time, which again is at the core part of the exercise of this Lenten journey that we're in. All of those questions are running through Abram's mind, and God knew exactly what he was thinking. He saw the doubt. He understood the fear. Now God moves to reassure Abram, and all will be well. The time has not yet come for the child to be born, but it's not far off. Now, as we look at Genesis 15, it's important for us to note that this text has rightly been called one of the most important chapters of the Bible. In it, we discover the details of what is known as the Abrahamic Covenant, which is the most important covenant in the Bible. Hundreds of years later, the New Testament writers, especially Paul in Galatians 3, Peter in Acts 3, they all look back on this covenant as the foundation of the Christian gospel. Look what the text says. This is Genesis 15, verse 1. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, a little fun fact. The word Genesis means beginnings. And with that, our text today has a bunch of several important firsts. It's the first time we see the phrase, the word of the Lord came ever used. It's a phrase that's used over a hundred times in the Old Testament alone. This is the first time we see it. The second is the first time we see God say, fear not to anyone. This is also the first time God is called a shield, which is frequently used in the Psalms, especially to describe God's protection for his people. Later in verse 6, we see another first, which is this is the first time anyone is said to have believed in the Lord. Now, when we think of Abram and Sarah, their story, we can come up with lots of reasons to doubt God's promise of a son, right? They're super old. There's a good reason. Many years had passed since the promise had been given, so they've been waiting a very long time, and that makes it difficult. Nothing like this that has been promised has ever been done before. That'll make you doubt. 
His wife, Sarah, also doubts that God's promises are going to happen. And whenever we're surrounded with other people who are doubting, it can be contagious. So when you think about it, there's no real reason to believe. No reason except that God had promised to do it, right? So then the question now is simple. Will God's promise be enough for Abraham? Which we must ask of ourselves as well. Will God's promises be enough for us? So with that in mind, what does God say? He says, do not be afraid. I am your shield. Now, when thinking of a shield, we shouldn't picture like current, like small shield, kind of really easy to carry, that's only kind of protecting you here. This shield in its understanding is intended to stretch from head to toe complete protection of every part of the body. It's a shield that protects from all attacks. So when it's used, what God's as a shield is to mean is two things. One is it's intended to uh, explain that God is to protect us in times of doubt and that he rescues us in times of danger. So that's what it's getting at when it says a shield. And note that God does not say, I will give you a shield. He says, I am your shield. The very God of heaven says that he will be our shield, which means we have a shield that is omnipotent, that's universal, that's eternal, a shield that cannot be defeated. It's as strong as God himself. In other words, we couldn't be in a better position, right? Who could defeat us when God himself is our shield? And so the message of God to Abraham and to us is clear. If God is your shield, fear not. Now, it's really important to be clear on something. As Christians, we are not immune to sadness, pain, hurt, you name it. It happens to others. It happens to us. Having God as our shield doesn't mean that we don't weep, that we don't suffer. Far from it which again touches on a text in 1 Thessalonians which says this, we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. Right? Our sorrow is different precisely because we have hope in God. And this is the core of what Lent is about. We practice trusting that the Holy Spirit's leading into the wilderness has a purpose, and the Holy Spirit that led us there will lead us out with purpose. And without that belief in the presence of God as our shield, we would never go there. We would never do such a thing. Which brings us back to the central issue. Why did God wait so long to give Abraham a son? Abraham's 75 when God first spoke to him. He's 100 when Isaac is finally born. He was almost 85 when God came to him and said, Fear not. And after all these years, God still wasn't ready to answer Abraham's prayer. Abraham's old, but he would be even older before Isaac was finally born. Which this touches on a question that plagues the people of God. It's nothing more vexing of a question than the question of unanswered prayer. Right? We know God loves us. He's got a plan for us. Why then does it take him so long to answer our deepest, most heartfelt prayers? 
We've all been there. And I'm going to give you a little warning right now. This is where pastors typically try to give you a really clear, concrete answer. And don't get me wrong. Um, even looking at our text today, I could suggest a couple things. But before I do, I want to be clear. Ultimately, I do not have an answer. And anyone who tells you that this is absolutely why God didn't answer a prayer or why he waited so long or whatever is wrong. It's not there. I wish it was. There are, however, concepts that we see repeated or explained throughout the scriptures that at the very least give us something to hold on to when we're in these places where we have fear and doubt. One concept we see in the story elsewhere in scripture as well is this idea that trials, temptations, and places of which we must wait on the Lord, um, they develop perseverance and maturity. Can you imagine what it would happen if every time we asked God for something, he just automatically said yes, no hesitation, no matter what it is? Not only would we take God for granted, for sure, we'd also develop a very shallow, untested faith. And we see this idea come up again in the scriptures all the way in James chapter 1. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, which I always think sounds kind of sarcastic, but... Consider it pure joy, my friends, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So at least as a concept, we can see that sometimes waiting, those places of fear and doubt, there's purpose behind it. Perseverance creates some maturity in us. Now, a second thing we see come up around waiting and doubts is that sometimes we have to wait to ensure that God alone gets the glory. Paul later writes about Abraham's story, and he very clearly mentions this point. We see it in Romans 4, 19 through 21. It says this, Without weakening in his faith, talking about Abraham, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Not only did Abraham have to wait 25 years For an answer to his prayer, he also had to suffer the humiliation of his own failed attempts to do it his own way. If you know the story, immediately after God had spoke to him in Genesis 15, he agrees with Sarah to sleep with their maidservant, Hagar, in a hope of conceiving a child through her. And guess what? It worked, right? Ishmael was born. But this short-sighted attempt to kind of help God out was not the plan. And it brought heartache to everyone involved. And in this case, the consequences aren't just a mistake or whatever. The the consequences a person, human beings, which is nuts to me. But thankfully, God takes our attempts and can still use them, and God swears to protect Hagar and Ishmael either way. Now, my point is that in the waiting, in the hopeless kind of doubt-filled, failed attempts to do everything we can without God, 
God sometimes responds with us waiting in order to demonstrate that he alone is responsible for answering our prayers, and he alone must get the glory. Now, there's a third kind of concept we see that sometimes has to go around with waiting, especially in those places where we start to to lack trust, and that is that it deepens our trust in God. I think this is why in Hebrews chapter 11 that they give way more space to Abraham's story than any of the Old Testament characters. And when we read the story, we see how long he waited, right? 25 years. We gain a new perspective on our own situation and our own waiting. How often do you have to wait 25 years for anything? If Abraham had to wait, if Jesus has to wait, it should be no surprise that there are going to be times when we're going to have to wait, and not just wait, but wait a long time before we see the fulfillment of our dreams or prayers answered. And as with Abraham, waiting is not bad, if it causes us to deepen our trust in God and to learn more about God's character. doesn't mean it's easy, but it's not a bad thing. And what's really interesting is that God's answer to the fear is not an argument, and it's not a formula. His answer to our fear is a person. That's why he said to Abram, fear not, I am your shield. In other words, God himself is the final answer to every fear of the human heart. Ever wondered why God called himself by the name I am in the Old Testament? You ever go, that's kind of a weird name, I am. Above all else, what it means is that God is eternally existent and therefore all creation depends on him. He stands alone, and no one can be compared to him. So think of it this way. To say that God is the great I am means that when we come to him, he is everything we need at exactly that moment. So if God, it's it's as if God is saying to you, I am your strength. I am your courage. I am your health. I am your hope. I am your counselor. I am your defender. I am your forgiveness. I am your joy. I am with you. God is saying to you and me, I am whatever you need whenever you need it. This is what I think is so cool about the incarnation. Jesus Christ is literally God with us. And that's the invitation that we have in this Lenten journey. It's an invitation to practicing The art of trusting, waiting, believing, and hoping in God who is with us. The one who leads and directs our path. The one to reach for when you doubt, when you're lost, when you have no answers, when you have no words. And the one who deserves all the glory. Now, there's a bunch of other scriptures that are designed for our lectionary today, and we don't have time to go through all of them, but I just want to say a couple things. On your piece of paper, there's a text from Philippians, and you'll see some words in there. We eagerly await a Savior, or stand firm in the Lord. And real quickly, I just want you to see how this theme comes up there as well. Here, Paul is passionately challenging the brothers and sisters in faith. This is an early church community, and he's letting them know something that is still true to us today. 
And that is that we are constantly surrounded by those who don't believe what we believe. Who will tell you that you are foolish to trust in God. That what you're waiting for, you're waiting for in vain. And that the only thing you have is yourself to figure things out. And Paul in the scriptures here literally has tears in his eyes. And he says to keep your minds focused on God. To stand firm. Don't give up. It's worth the wait. And then in the next text, in Luke, we see Jesus, again, being tempted to turn from God's plans. In Luke 13, it says this, At the time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. What it goes on and says, in any case, Jesus says, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Here we have an example where Jesus is again being tempted. He's given a very serious warning. Herod wants to kill you. Leave this place. And it's even coming from the Pharisees, no less. But rather than turn from God's plans and the leading of the Holy Spirit, Jesus presses on one day at a time. And this was even harder because Jesus actually knows what's coming, and it is not fun. Can you imagine not just waiting for something that you long for, but waiting for something you have to go through that if it was up to you, you'd never choose to go through it. Can you imagine the wrestling and the fear and the doubts knowing that you are heading towards being crucified on the cross for something you didn't even do? The themes of waiting, fears of doubt, all these things in faith, they saturate the scriptures from the beginning to the end. Why? Because be it Adam, Eve, Adam, uh, Abraham, Sarah, Mary, Joseph, Paul, Jesus, anyone who's human. We all know about this. It's part of our human nature to experience these things. This is why we need to practice Lent in some way. It reminds us that it's okay to wrestle and to doubt and to have fear, that it's okay to have questions. But Lent also reminds us of the faithfulness of God, his plans and his promises for each of us, that it's worth the wait, that God is our shield, that we're not alone, that he is with us. And my hope as we end is to encourage us to continue in this Lenten journey. Even if you feel like you've been failing, if you're not sure you can make it, you're sending out these questions of how long. If you're experiencing doubts and fears and finding yourself face-to-face in a place in your life where you're lacking faith, I want you to hear that you're not alone. Both in the sense that there's literally other people in this very room who are in the exact same boat as you, and the fact that the Holy Spirit that led you to where you are right now will also lead you through for the glory of God. Now, we normally do something called connection card questions. I'm not going to do that today, but on your piece of paper, that insert, there are two questions. I encourage you to take it home. uh, Use it as something to ponder, to apply, or just to think through um, our conversation today. Um, But at this time, I'd like to invite our worship team to come forward. And as they do, I just want to do something pretty simple. I just want to ask you to kind of loosen up, relax, and just close your eyes for a few moments. And as you do... 
uh, I just encourage you to take a couple deep breaths, being attentive to that. Relax, close your eyes, take a deep breath. Remind yourself that that breath you're breathing is the presence of the Holy Spirit literally giving you life right now. And as you keep your eyes closed and breathe, I'm just going to close us with our final scripture for today from our lectionary. It's a very beautiful psalm that is literally riddled with pleas and cries for help as well as confident declarations to God. And I think it perfectly depicts some of what we feel in those times of fear and doubt. So sit back, listen, um, and I'll read.